Well, you can turn over in your Bibles to First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, starting our continuing our study there. We're just in the first chapter, so we will be uh, looking at uh, just a couple verses this morning. Last time we were together, we did do a uh, uh, introduction to this book, and so I pray that that you've been reading it. And getting familiar with the text so that we can all uh, grow together as we uh, go through this this time of teaching. Um, I just, I think Ken mentioned it, but uh, Wednesday night, Ken Needham will be teaching on, on Wednesday night. Uh, he'll be over his sickness and, and back with us. And, and then the next day he leaves for Hawaii. So he had to postpone his trip for a week. But uh, for whatever reason, the Lord had him here for another week. So that was good. But um, as we uh, uh, look to God's Word, I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's Word, and I just want to read uh, the first couple verses here. Last time we were together, you remember we read the whole letter, and uh, it took a little time, but it's good to do that in that way. And so First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes there, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would bless our hearts, help us to understand this word as we study it together this morning. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Um, Some of you may be able to remember, uh, I'm sure most of you do who've been here for any time, Al Swanson, Alan Merlin Swanson. They live right down the street from us. And um, every year, Al would go out in the springtime and plant this huge garden in his backyard. He just had a way of growing things. And he would always, you know, he'd plant everything. I mean, just all kinds of things. And then he had beautiful roses and everything. And as I'd walk down to his house, I'd always get a little jealous, you know. It's like, wow, you know, that's just so neat to be able to eat your own vegetables from your backyard and everything. And I thought, what a, what a glorious thing, you know. And they'd give us some, or we'd go over there for dinner and we'd, we'd be able to eat them and stuff. But um, I thought, you know what, God, that's not fair. I mean, why are they, you know, they, they just seem to have this abundant garden in their backyard. And, uh, you know, we have uh, brown grass. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's just not fair. And um, because everybody knows that God grows the vegetables, right? I mean, that's, that's the mentality of, of so many of us. So why would he favor our neighbor and our backyard is so barren? And, I mean, I even owned a spade. I owned a shovel. I think a couple times I even bought some tomato plants. Brought them home. And that's about as far as they got. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, nothing's growing there. You know, there's no fruits and there's no vegetables. And it's God that gives the increase. The Bible tells us we know that uh, without exception, without the miracle of life from God's hand, Nothing can happen without the grace of God, without his rain, without his sunshine, without the soil, 
that little seed that they put in the ground shrivels or that plant will shrivel. But you know what? As any farmer will tell you, or any gardener for that matter tells you, because some of you have beautiful gardens in your backyards, um, we all have to play a part when we have a garden. You can't just look at your backyard and say, okay, God, I'm waiting. Where are the tomato plants? Where's the squash? Where's the watermelon? Where's everything that I love? Uh, No one expects a garden to appear spontaneously without some kind of preparation and some kind of work by the gardener or by the farmer. You have to plant. You have to water. You have to weed. You have to care for those plants, those vegetables. And I tell you that illustration because it's the same with our own spirits, with our own Christian lives. God works in the hearts of those who work with him. I mean, you know, the old cliche that says God helps those who help themselves. You've heard that, I'm sure, right? God helps those who help themselves. Um, That's very poor theology when it comes to receiving God's justification. That's poor theology when it comes to talking about our salvation. Because we know that that is a work of God solely. There's nothing we can add to it. There's no effort that we can excuse, come, come, come out from us to, to make that happen. We can't save ourselves. The only thing that comes from us is our trust in a holy God who's provided for us his son on the cross to pay for our sins. But it does teach that phrase, God helps those who help themselves. It does teach a measure of truth when it relates to our abiding in Christ and our faithful obedience in our Christian lives. You know, we can't be so theology heavy that we just say, well, it's all God and and we don't do anything. There's some people that believe that. That's a fatalistic theology that's not taught in the Bible at all. Is God sovereign? Completely. But we, we have to guard against having a fatalistic mentality when it comes to things like the church and evangelism and our own Christian growth. You know, if you don't put in the effort, if you don't spend time in the word and prayer as they did in the New Testament, guess what? You're not going to grow in your Christian walk. It's not going to happen. God gives growth and he gives spiritual growth and the results, by the way, the fruits of vegetables or the fruits of righteousness, if you will, to everyone who works on the garden of their own heart. And, and trust me, it's no easy task. It's a never-ending task. It's just like when you have a real garden. You can't just plant a garden once and expect it next spring, hey, it's going to come back automatically. You know, there's going to be weeds. You're going to have to, you know, dig up and you're going to have to tend to the soil. You're going to have to fertilize. You're going to have to plant some new plants. It's going to take hard work. It requires work. It requires labor. And that's what Paul is really commending here in his opening statements. If you look down at verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, Remembering before our God and Father, what? Your work of faith. Your work of faith. And labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Thessalonians clearly modeled the principle of of cooperation 
when it comes to living their Christian life with God as their Lord and Savior. I'm thinking of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, when Paul says, what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who, what? Who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing. See, the Thessalonians received this message of grace and this call to action and loving service to others from Paul. And they were carrying it out. And Paul saw this, so he spent really the, the first chapter here of 1 Thessalonians as we go through this, you're going to see him applauding them. He's saying, good job. This is what a church should be. This is how a church should act. This is the priorities of a biblical church. And we can study Paul's insights for help in working on their own hearts And it's kind of like Al's garden. You know, it was the evidence of a cooperative effort when he harvested all the vegetables. It was him and God. And so today I want to look at, just in the opening couple verses here really, the qualities of a church that will have an impact or the qualities of an impactful church. Because I think we all know there's many churches. There's a lot of churches. Even here in Redwood City, there's a lot of churches. And, you know, we're not the only church on the block. We don't claim to be the, you know, the, the light bearers of all truth or anything like that. Um, but it's important to understand that there are so many churches that some of them are true churches and some of them are not. Uh, there's a lot of people that, that believe a majority of Churches are made up of people who haven't really ever experienced salvation. They go to church, they come to church because that's what they've always done. And so we're going to look at some of these characteristics as we we get into this. But when you think of an impactful church, of a church that is really having a, making a difference in the society in which they live, in the town in which they live, it's really it's the church that stands firm. And that's really the theme of, of 1 Thessalonians is standing firm. He wants them to continue to stand firm. And it makes a great impact when it consists of people who are transformed by the gospel. You know, we could leave here and go to a myriad of churches, even in our area, who have a lot of people and are doing a lot of great things. But are they really doing what the Lord is calling them to do. What makes up an impactful church? Um, Well, we want to go through these opening verses here, and we're going to see the first point there. There's only two points today in your outline. But the church that makes an impact is a local community of people who are in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we just came out of a series on the church, so I'm not going to talk a lot about uh, the the church because you can go back and listen to those messages when we talk about the the church defined. We had, I think it was three or four messages on that. And you can go back on the the, uh, 
church app, which is free, by the way. If you haven't downloaded the church app, please do so. Uh, you know, we don't get anything from it, but it's just easier to communicate with you. If you have that on your cell phone, it's free in the App Store or the Android Store because we can send out messages to you, you know, Wednesday night's canceled. You know, hopefully nobody showed up Wednesday night, but we, we had an email went out. I know a couple people showed up because they weren't on the email. So, you know, but we try to do our best to communicate it when there's last-minute changes. But if you had the app on your phone, you would just automatically get a little notification, whoa, wow, this is... We're not having Bible study tonight or something happened. We need prayer for someone. It's just a good way to stay in touch. Plus, the messages are up there, and you can give through the app and everything else. But the point here is that this local community of people are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says in verse 1. He starts right off, and he he gives kind of a greeting or an introduction, as you do in any letter, right? Um, He says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Now, you know, Paul wrote this. He's the, this is the Apostle Paul. We found that out last time we were together. We talked about him a little bit and his suffering that he went through and, and how he was, uh, had to leave Thessalonica kind of prematurely because they were uh, persecuting him. And the church thought it best if he move on. And so they, they moved on. But it says there, Paul, he's the one who founded this church. Uh, notice down in verse 5, The beginning of verse 5, he says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, look at what he says, also in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What's interesting, in this book, Paul doesn't acknowledge that he's an apostle. Do you see that? If you look at his other writings, other than the book of Philippians and 2 Thessalonians, he always says, Paul the apostle. Here he doesn't wonder why. Apparently, he didn't feel the need to remind them that he was an apostle. Apparently, they weren't challenging his authority. You know, they, they, they recognized that he was an apostle, clearly, but he didn't have to come and, and, and write them a letter that was kind of hard for them to bear. You know, if I had to talk to you about something in your personal life, I'd probably, first of all, come to you as a friend. And say, hey, what are you doing? This isn't right. But if you didn't listen, I might have to say, hey, you know what? As pastor of this church, this can't go on here. Right? I kind of exude a little authority. And if that didn't work, then I'd get a hold of Ken and we'd both come. And we'd say, look, as leaders in the church, you can't be doing this. It doesn't line up with scripture. Okay? Um, but here Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. <clears throat> it's, it's absent from that. He didn't have to remind them of his authority because really he was praising them. He was applauding them. And then he mentions Silvanus or Silas. Silvanus is the the Latin form of, of this word. And he also mentions Timothy. Now, a lot of people think, well, did they write this book? No, they didn't write it. Did they help Paul write it? Well, maybe, but let's be clear. Paul is the one who God is using here as the mouthpiece. He's working through Paul. He's he's not working through all of them at the same time. It's not a collaborative effort here of them to write this book. That's not what's going on. Paul is the apostle, and he is hearing from God divine revelation, and he's recording it or having them record it. And he found himself in Thessalonica with Silvanus and Timothy, and they founded a church there. And, and I think Paul is just showing his, 
humility, if nothing else. You know, he could have said, oh, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. But if you look down at verse 2, he says we. At verse 3, remembering our God. Look at verse um, uh, 4, for we know. Okay, he's constantly using we are. He's not saying me, mine, I, right? And so he was, he was inclusive here. And that's what ministry is. Ministry has to be that way, or it's not ministry. Uh, it doesn't, even in a small church like ours, trust me, I mean, it doesn't fall to one person. It just doesn't. It can't. There's multiple people. Even in a small church like ours, 10, 15 people that do things on Sunday mornings that for the most part I have no idea what they're doing as the pastor of the church. I know what goes on. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I saw Carolyn this morning in the kitchen, so I know she's the one that was over there. But, I, you know, when you walk over there and there's food on those tables, it doesn't just magically appear. <laughs> You know, like manna from heaven or something. I mean, there are people that put in effort. And not just, by the way, not just Sunday morning. I mean, they have to, yeah, they have to go to the grocery store. Okay, I don't do it. My wife doesn't do it. So somebody has to go buy all this stuff. And then they have to check what's here and make sure the the paper, and we got paper towels, we got plates, we got, I mean, it'd be great to have all the food and no plates. That wouldn't be fun. Just slopping it out with our fingers, I guess, or whatever. No silver. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that happen. Or even, you know, we see the children get up and go downstairs. Well, somebody has put in time and effort all week in preparation for a lesson. And it really shows you their heart. Because we don't have, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of children right now. In the, in the cycle we're in in our church, it goes up and down. And I've been here for many years, and it, it always does that. But if you want to pray for something, pray for more families. Pray for families with children who are interested in their children learning the word of God to be taught. And, you know, we need to continue to pray for that. But see, ministry is a team endeavor. It doesn't focus around one individual. As a matter of fact, when you get to the point where you're focusing on one individual in any ministry, what happens? Remember when we were going through Corinthians? What happened at the beginning of Corinthians? Well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of, and they, had, they all had their little favorite guy. You know, they were following. And some of them were even following Jesus Christ. You know, well, we follow Jesus, but you know, we're not going to follow Paul. See, it has to be an effort of a team coming together. That's why here at Grace Bible, we don't have committees. We have ministry teams. We have a finance ministry team. We have a mission ministry team. We have a, a worship team. And it's, it's very important that you understand that because we don't, you know, when you come and you want to be involved in ministry, please understand you're going to be part of a team. Lone Rangers do not work well here in this environment when it's a team environment. Ask any sports team. If you're not going to function as a team, guess what? You're probably not going to win. You may win once or twice, but you're not going to win consistently. But when you see a team that comes together, maybe around a leader, but that leader is cognizant of the fact that, you know what, without the team, 
he couldn't do anything because there'd be nobody to lead. And, and that's very important. So here we have Silas, Silvanus, and Timothy. And they probably are mentioned because they were with him when this church was founded. They, they, they helped Paul during this time. And um, he, was a, he was a Jewish believer. He was a gifted prophet whom the, pro, the, the apostles in Jerusalem actually appointed him to carry out the directives of the uh, Jerusalem council in Antioch. And you can read about that in Acts 15. But Paul chose Silas to accompany him on his second missionary uh, journey after he and, and uh, Barnabas had a, a falling out over uh, John Mark, over Mark. So, you know, that was how he ended up here. And then you have Timothy, and he was a, a young man from Lystra, and he had a Gentile father and a Jewish mother, Acts 16 tells us. And he became kind of like a faithful son in the faith to Paul. He was like that, that guy that you went to the Lord and they're just you know, looking to you to just give them everything they need spiritually. That's kind of the relationship that they had. And he accompanied Paul on the missionary journeys and Paul sent him out on, on various uh, assignments, pastoral assignments. He was a young pastor, and so Paul would have him go do certain things and say, hey, go, go over there and see how that church is doing and report back. And Timothy was just obedient. He was faithful. What's interesting, in, Luke, in Acts 17, we read this last time we were here, um, but Luke doesn't mention Timothy, but we, you know, for the most part, he was there at the founding of the church. Uh, he was definitely with Paul both earlier and later on the same journey. Um, and so since Paul includes him here in the, in the greeting, we can assume that he had a part in bringing the gospel to this city. And so it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, then look at the next phrase, to the church of the Thessalonians. To the church. And that word, ecclesia, it describes all, that word itself describes all Christians in the New Testament everywhere, including the local church and the universal church. It's both. A local church is a local congregation that's usually designated to a, a city like Thessalonica. This would be a local church in Thessalonica. Okay, Grace Bible Church is a local church. But there's also a universal church that... that breaks out of the boundaries of the church building. So all those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are part of the universal church. But we're called to gather locally. All right, It'd be impossible to gather all. That one day will come when we're all called to heaven. <laughs> but until then, we're, we're called to gather where we live, whether it's in our city or our town, whatever. And you notice here that Paul addresses the letter to the church of the Thessalonians. And then he says this, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See that? In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word church literally means called out ones, ones who were called out. That's why it's important to understand, you know, when we go through this whole pandemic and so many people say, well, you know, we're not going to meet as the church. Well, that's against everything that the church is. Because we are to be called out, to be gathered together 
And it's not a specifically a holy word. I mean, sometimes in the New Testament, that word church, ecclesia, can refer to a mob of unruly people. So it doesn't have any spirituality to it. But when it's talking about those who are gathered together to worship God, it's talking about the local church or the universal church. And um, it was widely used to refer to various assemblies of people, both religious and secular. And sometimes we have to be careful that we don't think of ourselves and our church as the only church. Because that's just simply not the case. There's a lot of wonderful churches, even here in Redwood City, that are trying to do the best they can with what they have. And it's important that we don't constantly denigrate and put down all other churches as if we're the only one. Now, with that being said, I'm willing, maybe more than willing, to call out those churches that are not doing things in a biblical fashion. Okay, I mean, I think that we can't just be, become Unitarians while well, we're all in this together, you know, coexist kind of a thing, a little bumper sticker. No, I don't believe that at all. There is truth. There is error. There is doctrine that's wrong. There's doctrine that's right. So we want to focus on the doctrine that's right. So that is going to be a little divisive. But at the same time, we don't want to forget that, that the very word for church means those who are called out. And... Um, It's used a couple times to refer to Israel as God's people in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it has special reference to one body of Christ that began on the day of Pentecost. And it consists of those who are born again, Jews and Gentiles. That would be a definition of the church. You see that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you all are what? One in Christ Jesus. That's what the church is. It's those who have been born again. doesn't matter what country you're from. doesn't matter what your, the color of your skin. doesn't matter whether you're male or female. It's irrelevant. But is your faith in Christ, legitimate. And so it can be used, that word church, to describe all Christians everywhere or even a local congregation. Uh, Mark Dever has a book called The Church, The Gospel Made Visible. And in that book he writes this, the church should be regarded as important to Christians because of it's important to Christ. That kind of makes sense. He goes on, he says, Christ founded the church. He purchased it with his own blood and intimately identifies himself with it. The church is the body of Christ, the dwelling place of his spirit, and the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world. And then finally he says, the church is God's instrument for bringing both the gospel to the nations and a great host of redeemed humanity to himself. I mean, that's how important the church is to Christ. So I think, you know, we don't need to argue the fact that the church is essential for believers. But notice he says here, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In reference to the church as in God rather than the church of God, he says in God. And that's, uh, it's unusual 
in Paul's writings. You can think about it as the Bible describes our relationship to God. It puts it this way, that we are what? In Christ. We are in Christ. Paul uses that term over and over again. It means that we are identified completely with him. Uh, We are organically tied to him like branches are to a vine. That's what John 15 tells us, right? Or as Paul writes in Colossians 3.3, For you have died and your life is what? Hidden with Christ in God. So that's our position in Christ. If you, you have to understand that as a believer. That when you leave the darkness and you come to the light and you turn from your sin and you turn to the Savior, there, there's a myriad of things that happen. Okay? But one of the things that happens is that God takes you and he puts you in his son. And so when God looks at you, what does he see? He sees his son. He sees the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That should help us sleep at night. Because last time I checked, none of us are perfect yet, right? We all fail God in a myriad of ways probably daily. But it's a wonderful thing to think that that when God looks at us positionally, if we trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are in Christ. We are completely identified with him. Um. And we know God as our what? As our heavenly father, the Bible says. It's a wonderful truth. Um, If you've never read the book Knowing God by uh, uh, Packer, it's a wonderful book. And he asks the question, what is a Christian in this book? What is a Christian? And he answers it this way. He says, the question can be answered in many ways. But the richest answer I know is that a Christian is the one who has God for his father. He understands that. That I have a heavenly father in heaven. He goes on and he says, you sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the holy creator. In the same way you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe It has the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, he says, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. That's a good definition of the Christian faith. And see, at the very, very earliest stage of our Christian life, we should understand and we should grasp the idea that we we know God as our Father. He's our Father, our Heavenly Father. He loves us. He cares for us more than any earthly father could ever do. And see, I think that's really one of the barriers for a lot of people to come to Christ. Because you talk about God as their father, and they didn't have a good relationship with their father. Maybe it was an abusive relationship. Maybe something was wrong with the relationship. And so when they think of God, <laughs> they, don't, they don't have the proper understanding. But see, 
He, he loves us and he cares for us more than any earthly father could ever. And so he says, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He puts them under a single preposition. And you know what that shows us? He doesn't have to explain to the church of Thessalonica about the Trinity. They already understand it. He already taught them that. That was like Christian 101 class when he was there and they were coming to Christ. They don't even question it. They didn't even even say, well, what do you mean God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul? What does that mean? Are they the same? He had already gone over all that teaching with him. That's why it's not here. Both from the, the Jewish background that made up the church and also the pagan background that made up the church. And it really puts Jesus on an equal plane with God the Father, which talks about his deity. And that's why he refers to him as the Lord, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. Lord refers to his deity. To call Jesus Lord was to use the Old Testament term Yahweh, the God of Israel. You're acknowledging who he is. You're acknowledging his authority. John Stott says this, already within 20 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the coupling of the Father and the Son as equal is the universal faith of the church. There's nobody questioning the idea of the Trinity back then. They just accepted it. And to distinguish God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, it really shows that they are two people, but yet one. (laughs) Two people, yet one. And then he says, not just Lord, but he uses the word Jesus, and we know that that refers to his humanity, that Jesus did come physically to this earth, and that's what we call the incarnation, that's what we celebrate every Christmas time, that God came down in the form of humanity, To live a life? I mean, God could have done this in a myriad of ways, but he chose to do it that way. And so, it's very important to realize that if Jesus wasn't a human, we would not have salvation. It couldn't have been provided for us because a human had to die. And it had to be a perfect human. And that's why Jesus came. Because last time I checked, God can't die. Right? I mean, and so the human aspect of Jesus died on that cross. He gave up his life. His heart physically stopped beating. His brain waves turned off at a certain point. His lungs stopped breathing. And he was dead as a human. And then the word Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, what does that refer to? It refers to his office. It refers to the office as deliverer of God's people. Because Christ kind of talks about the promised anointed deliverer of God's people. And you say, well, if they believed in the Trinity, then where's the Holy Spirit here in this little phrase? Well, that's why I read down in verses uh, 5 and 6 a little earlier, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in, and he includes the third aspect of the Trinity, Also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And then he talks about, down in verse 6, the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so he wants them to understand that this triune God, 
is the reason why this church was even established. And then his next words here in the text of, of verse 1 are grace to you and peace. Grace, charis, in the, in the original language, um, it has ties to the word rejoice. Um, grace is, is something that we get that we don't deserve. It, it's unmerited favor that's extended to sinners through the work of Christ. You know, sometimes as believers, we think, well, yeah, you know, I'm a believer. I, I, I deserve this. No, you don't. We all deserve what? Full payment for our, our sin, and, and, and that is eternal hell. That's what we deserve. We don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve to be forgiven. But what does God do? God extends his what? Grace to us. Something we don't deserve. It's unmerited favor. Because Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins on the cross, the Bible tells us. God's holy justice is satisfied. Somebody had to pay this price. We couldn't do it. You know, if you crucified yourself and and died for your own sins, it wouldn't matter. Because you're not a perfect sacrifice. That wouldn't accomplish anything. And yet... Unfortunately, the enemy, Satan, has taken that, that theology, that thinking, and has even brought it into churches, that somehow you're going to earn favor from God. I mean, some of you may be here this morning because you think, well, if you didn't come, God's going to get you. That's a wrong reason to come to church. That's, that's not a wholesome reason. That's not a biblical reason. But it's pounded into us that somehow we can... We can work and earn God's favor. And so we try to do good things. And there's nothing wrong with doing good things. I mean, the Bible says that there are good works prepared beforehand for us to do. And he encourages us to walk in those. But if, we're, if our motivation to do good things is to earn God's favor, that, that won't go very far. Because God's holy justice has already been satisfied. Through the death of Christ. That's why Christ went to the cross. That's why Christ, as he hung on the cross and he suffered, what is the last thing Christ said? What? It is It is finished. What is finished? What's he talking about? He's talking about his suffering. He's talking about his payment for our sin. It's done. Nothing else further needed to be done <clears throat> after Christ died on the cross. And that's why... God can extend to us a free pardon. He, he extends to us forgiveness in Christ. To all who will receive it. But just like the garden illustration, right? You have to receive it. You have to, you have to say, yes, I need it. <laughs> I, I, I want it. God doesn't just save you in the middle of the night as you're dreaming. And you get up and go, wow, I don't know what happened. Now I'm, now I'm a Christian. That's, it never happens that way. It doesn't happen that way in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the Bible says just the opposite. How, how can they believe? How can they hear? What? Unless someone goes. How can they hear without a preacher? And that's not talking about someone like me who stands up here every Sunday and, and preaches. It's talking about all believers are preachers. We all preach the gospel. 
If you're a born-again Christian, you need to understand that you are a message to a lost and dying world, either through your lips or through your life, but you are definitely a message. And I pray that it's a message that brings honor and glory to Christ. I mean, remember when Moses asked God to reveal his glory, and the Lord replied in Exodus 33:18, "I will be gracious," he says, "to whom I am gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion." See, to be gracious is who God is. The world has a skewed perspective of God. Most sinners think of God as, as some grumpy old man up in heaven who's just trying to ruin their party. That's not the God we serve. God loves them. He wants to extend his grace to them. But they have to be willing to respond. <clears throat> so he says, first of all, grace to you. And then he says, and peace. And that's the, the normal Hebrew um, greeting, shalom. That's really what that is. It was the normal greeting they would greet each other with. And we have peace with God because what? He is gracious to us. We wouldn't have the peace if it wasn't for God's grace. That's why it's laid out the way it's laid out. Grace, then peace. He broke down the barrier. He he took the wall that was dividing us and he abolished it. And he removed all that hostility. You know, you think of Adam and Eve in the garden, and man, they had fellowship with God daily. Until what? Until they disobeyed, until they sinned. And all of a sudden, what did they find themselves doing? Hiding, hiding from God. I mean, God knew where they were when he cried out, where are you? I mean, he knew where they were. But that shows you the hostility of that, of what sin does in a relationship. And it, it, it was through that grace and the peace that God broke down that barrier. And so the main idea here is that the church, the, the church is not a building. It's not a building. You know, we think, well, you invite your friend, oh, come to my church. Well, yeah, first of all, it's not your church. And it's not a building. We could be meeting in a cow pasture. Wouldn't matter. Doesn't matter where you meet. It's not an organization It's an organism. It's something that's living. It's something that's breathing. It's not a social religious club where you come and you do your good deeds and feel better about yourself the rest of the week. No, rather the church is what? It's a local community of people who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes up the church. It's people transformed by the gospel. And because they've been transformed by the gospel, they're now united to each other as one body that is completely distinct from the world. Totally separate from the world because they are in God and in Christ. That's our our position as the church. So it's a local community of people who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit. But secondly, a church that makes an impact is this. It's not the work of man, but it is the work of God. It's the work of God. It has to be. 
Look at what he says in verse 2. 1 Thessalonians verse 2. He says, we give thanks to you. No, he didn't say that. Remember, I said he's applauding the Thessalonians for their, 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 their church and their, their Christian growth and, and how they're living. But who's he giving thanks to? Paul says, we give thanks to who? God. Always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. What is he saying here? Doctrinally, he's saying God is the source of our salvation. Our salvation does not come from within ourselves. You know, you can sit around and contemplate your navel all you want. That's not going to definitely, you know, just lead you by itself to salvation. At some point, God is going to have to quicken your mind to understand the words of this book, the words of the gospel, and you're going to have to understand the situation you're finding yourself in, that, wow, I am in a world of hurt. Because God, first of all, he says that I'm a sinner. And, and that I am due my payment for my sin is basically death. The soul that sins dies. Not just physically, but spiritually. What can I do about this? Well, outside of Christ, nothing. Absolutely nothing. And that's what his message here is, is that this is a work of God that he does in people's hearts. You know, so many times I hear Christians say, boy, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to witness to my neighbor. I'm witness to this family member. I'm doing this or I'm doing that. And, and I, I, I just want to bring them to church, bring them to church. They need to go to church. Well, there's nothing wrong with bringing them to church. I, I'm not saying that's, that's not a bad thing. But what I'm saying is if they come to church, don't think for a minute they're going to feel comfortable in church. <laughs> They shouldn't feel comfortable in church. They should feel on edge. They should feel like, whoa, what is this message I'm hearing? This is not very affirming to my, my good heart. I mean, how dare that pastor call me a sinner? I'm here in church. Because the Bible calls you a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. Including the Pope, including the pastor, including everybody. We're all in the same boat together. But what we need to do is respond affirmatively to God's grace, to the message of the gospel. What's the message of the gospel? Stop trying to earn your own salvation. I mean, God's not looking down on you from heaven because you're here in church as an unbeliever going, whoa, I'm so happy they're in church. That's not the way it works. As a matter of fact, if the Lord came back right now and you were left in your seat and all of us were raptured out of here, I mean, maybe then you'd wake up and realize, whoa, what just happened? You know, this is the work of God in people's hearts. And as Christians, we need to acknowledge that. It doesn't mean you don't invite them to church, but don't think just because they go to church that they're a Christian. See, we, we put them on an equal plane. When I was a youth pastor, you know, usually the girls would start dating some guy and they'd come to me and they'd say, well, I just want to let you know, you know, I have a boyfriend now. Well, okay, who is he? And, you know, I haven't seen him in church. 
is he a Christian? That would be my first question. And they, well, yeah, yeah, they are. He is, I think. And, you, know. <laughs> you know, and they'd hedge their bet there. And then I'd start asking, well, what church did he go to? And then they'd hedge the bet even more. And finally they realized, yeah, he's probably not a Christian pastor. <laughs> Um, if they're going to be honest with it. You know, but we think just because somebody's sitting in a pew on a Sunday morning makes them a Christian, that is not the case. And so Paul here gives thanks to God. He's not, he's not commending the Thessalonians for their wise decision to believe Jesus. He's not saying, boy, you guys are so smart. You know, I'm so glad that you, you figured this out and, and now you believe in Christ. And, and you know, I know it's all you're doing. No, he's, he's thanking God. And look at what he says in verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God. Look at what he says. That he, God, has what? Chosen you. We're going to get into this next week. The doctrine of election. It's right here. We've got to go through it. Some of you are already thinking, oh, no, not again, you know. But it's there. We have to talk about it. It's important. And in verse 5... He even adds, because our gospel came to you not only in word, that wouldn't have done any good. Even though Paul was a wonderful orator, he could have probably wooed any crowd with his, his oratory skills, but he didn't say that. It's not based on my word. He says, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know, it's kind of like, you remember the story in John 3. If you've never read it, go read it. Gospel of John, chapter 3. It, it, Jesus tells a story about Nicodemus. And, you know, he, his whole point of that story is being in God's kingdom is not a matter of religious observance. So he was a Pharisee. He thought, well, I'm, I'm going to, you know, just do certain things and God's going to look favorably down on me. No, it rather depends on the sovereign working of the Holy Spirit who gives new life. It's God who gives us our salvation. And that's consistent with New Testament teaching. Um, back in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, the very beginning, he emphasizes that um, God's choice of them apart from any human qualification that they possessed. Uh, look at what he says in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. So he's talking to Christians. He says that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen, look at this, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not. Why did he do this? So that he may nullify the things that are. And that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Can you imagine what heaven would be like one day when we get there if it was our work that saved us? I mean, it would just be a big bragging you know, mob of people 
Well, I did this. I did that. I did that. You know, I mean, they wouldn't be giving God any glory. And we're going to consider this further as we dive into this next week in verse 4. But really, I, I want to ask you this question as we kind of wrap things up here. Honestly, as you sit here this morning, can you ask yourself this question prayerfully before the Lord? Has God changed my heart from unbelief to faith in Jesus Christ? Has God changed my heart from unbelief to faith in Jesus Christ? Has he changed my desires? Well, how so? From worldly pursuits to seeking first his kingdom, as Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Ask yourself the question, has he changed my aim from seeking my glory to seeking his glory? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, so whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That's written to Christians. Ask yourself, has he changed your focus? From wanting to please yourself to wanting to please him. Romans 15, 2 and 3 says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached, of who reproached, who fell, you fell on me. Or Colossians 1, 10 says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Has he changed me from loving darkness and hating the light to loving the light and hating darkness? John chapter 3, verse 19 and 23 says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That makes sense. Bad things happen at night for a reason. Verse 20 says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, you know, true Christianity is not a moral improvement in your life. It's not some project, self-project, where you try to improve your character and all those things. You know, it's not setting certain goals. Okay, I'm going to start, start, stop swearing and stop smoking and stop drinking. And if I do all these things, then God will love me more. No. Rather, it's a matter, simply, it's simply a matter of moving from death to life. That's why it takes a work of God in your heart, because you can't do that on your own. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 6 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the, the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, we were all there. Not one of us can escape this. We were all there at one, at one point. Lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, 
And listen to this. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We've been changed from blind to being able to see the light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Those who study churches and counsel Christians, and I put that in quotes, Some of their studies say that probably 75% of those coming in for counseling think they are Christians and they've never been converted. They've never been saved. See, because that, and the reason that is, is because today in the world we live in, the gospel, the weak gospel that we see all over the place, centers on how God can solve your problems, how God can make you happy rather than how God has provided a Savior from sin and judgment. There are many, many in the evangelical churches today who think they're saved, and they simply are not. They've never been changed. They heard some pitch somewhere for abundant life, and they made some prayer to, to, to receive Jesus, and somebody said, now you're part of the family, welcome. But there was no change in their life. They were never convicted of their sin, They never repented of their sin, which means a change of mind, turning away from the sin to the Savior. And they never really trusted in Christ. See, for a church to have any kind of eternal impact, we have to be a church where we all have been transformed by the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to see more of what that means next week. But that word church, as I said, it means called out ones, or you could say it means elect ones. The main thing to walk away from today, has God changed your heart by enabling you to trust in Christ Jesus as your only hope for the forgiveness of sin and for eternal life? Has God done that? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. And that's an ongoing examination. He says, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? We have to be distinct from those around us if we're going to have an impact. We must live lives that are transformed by the gospel. Bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for these words of encouragement to our hearts. Lord, uh, we know what you're doing here in our our church, Grace Bible Church, because we we know what you've done in our hearts. And Father, we thank you for the joy that we can have as we minister amongst your true people here. And that we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for the peace that you've given to us, and thank you for those who labor here in this place 
where the elect have been called together. And that joy is a joy that was shared by Paul. Even in the midst of all his trials and difficulties and struggles. And even in the midst of the pain and the suffering and difficulties he saw in the churches that he founded. There was a church at Thessalonica that he could rejoice in and applaud because it gave him joy. Because they were standing firm in their faith. And Father, we thank you too for this place, our church. And may we continue to know that joy of being your brethren, your brothers and sisters, your chosen ones. I pray you would protect our church, keep it pure. That we might be a blessing to your heart as well. Lord, I pray for any here this morning who've yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. Maybe today is the day. Maybe they feel the the conviction, the weight of their sin. And Lord, I pray that if they do, I pray that they would turn to the only one who can relieve them of that. And you call us to bring our burdens, our cares to you because you care for us. And there's no other way, greater way, that someone can show how much they care to give up their own life. And that's what Christ did for our, our, our benefit. So if you're here this morning and you desire to be a Christian, you desire to trust in Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, I pray that you'll cry out to him first and foremost, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. I want this change that Steve's talking about. I want this transformation to happen in my life. If you desire that from a pure heart, he'll answer your prayer and he will save you. And You'll be a new creature in Christ. And Father, as Christians, I pray that as we leave this four walls today, that we would be ever mindful of the fact that we live in a lost and dying world and they need desperately to hear the words of life, that blessed assurance that we've sung about earlier, Lord, that that would be our story and that we would share that with others who have yet to hear and that you would use us mightily For your glory, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.